Once Upon a Time, Season 5, Episode 3 is over, but we are just getting started here on Once Upon a Recap. Hello, all you magical people out there. My name is Mike Bloom, one of the co-hosts of Once Upon a Recap, and I am joined by the man who I would always bro down with to go get mushrooms in an eternal dark forest. It is the one and only Kurt Clark. Kurt, how you doing? I'm doing great, and I am all ready to talk about the dudes of the bro table. Oh my, such a bro-heavy episode. You know, I will, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say Once Upon a Time is a, like, a feminine-oriented show or it skews heavily towards one gender or the other, but it's very rare that we have, you know, a lot of guy-on-guy interaction. We got, <laughs> we got loads of it between, obviously, David and Arthur is the main story, but we got a lot of Hook and Robin as well. This was a, this was an episode for the dudes. It definitely was. Uh, yeah, and, you know, we, we can't say that they, they didn't give David anything to do this season. That's very true. And this is also not only is it a David episode, it's a standalone David episode, which I'm trying to remember. I think the last one we saw was around this time last season. Uh, That was the one where he actually had met Anna previously when he had the really bad wig on and they went to go see Bo Peep, the like mob woman. Uh, But that was really the last. And before that, I can't even remember the last time we saw David in his own standalone story. Yeah, it's uh it was it was it was a nice it was it was, it was a nice uh, gift for him I think absolutely so I, I before we jump into things too much um, I do want to just I- issue a quick apology um, I know there were some sound issues last week and I, I do apologize about that there were some connection issues on our part and we we worked the best we could to really keep that audio going uh, I know some of it was compromised but we have undergone several methods this week moving forward to make sure that we give you the best audio quality possible including a mushroom that I have found that I, I'm hoping is uh, communicating to Kurt right now because otherwise Otherwise, I'd be looking very foolish. Um, I have a toadstool on this end. I don't know what you mean by a mushroom. <laughs> yeah, is there is there a difference? I I I am not a botanist whatsoever. Or I guess it's a, it's a fungus, so that's not technically botany. But I I don't know the difference between the two. Um, I just know that the 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 Mario uh, equivalencies. Um, I, I don't see a lot. You see, there's a princess toadstool, right? right? Princess yeah. Peach, but there's a princess toadstool yeah, as well. She was originally called Princess Toadstool, yeah. and then obviously Toad. Uh, the toads are like the anthropomorphized mushrooms, but there are also the yeah. mushrooms that Mario eats to become a larger version of himself. Yeah, yeah so, you, you rarely hear of edible toadstools. That's the only yeah. thing I'm going by. Well, uh, if you you rarely hear about it and then live, uh, you know, to really hear the story about it. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, so let's let's uh, let's get down to business here because I mean I feel like I, I'm just you know a broken record here, but man, the action is really moving along here. I mean, three episodes in, and it almost seems like we found our big bad for the season thus far. Yeah, uh, and I have to say, throughout the episode, I was thinking there's something up with Arthur, and I'm not quite sure. We even talked a little bit about it last week, I think. Um, but yeah, this is this is this is potentially. Uh, if not our big bad, at least our our villain for the next few episodes. Well, I will say the way Once Upon a Time half seasons tend to work is that there is almost seems to be I'll use the analogy of like there's a curtain. And then at the beginning of the season, we're shown a person in front of the curtain and we're led to believe, okay, this is the main villain that they'll be tackling. And then at some point in the season, the curtain gets parted and there's actually someone backstage that's been running the entire thing that is much more dangerous than the first one. So I feel like we've already had that curtain open right now and that Arthur's going to be the main person that they're going to have to figure out they need to fight eventually. Uh, But let's not discount Dark Emma. Uh, I mean, I think I think she's still I think Dark Swan is still our, our big baddie. Um 
But yeah, well, we'll talk more about evil Arthur, or at least um, self-interested Arthur. Yeah. So let's, I mean, well, let's jump back to his kingdom here. Let's let's start with all the flashback stuff as our heroes are searching for something called Witchbane, uh, which apparently is what they're going to use to either cure Merlin or be able to contact him. Though it turns out that there is another... Let's let's add this to the book, Kurt, of realm crossing. This isn't a way to travel across realms, but I guess it's a way to communicate across realms. It is the Crimson Crown, which almost seems like a new Marvel movie that's coming out. Yeah, it's, it's a new member of the Avengers. Okay, um, I would not be surprised. <laughs> um, I, I got more the impression that it, it let you... I guess it could let you communicate across realms, which is different, I'd say, than a, a portal. Yeah. Um, it's it's very vague and broad on what it does. It helps you communicate across barriers. And at least they're thinking that uh, this magical barrier could include someone being transformed into a tree. So let's give that a shot. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I, I, I keep this as a, maybe an appendix or a separate <laughs> a separate pamphlet, uh, an addendum to the uh, the portal, <laughs> the portal rules. But it's yeah. definitely a, uh, a a magical device we should keep track of. Yeah, and I mean, it, it brings up an interesting idea of like, uh, I mean, are they assuming that Merlin is in some sort of realm? I mean, I believe it's Bell that brings up that Merlin could actually be the tree. It's not like he's in. It's not like he's back in the hat where he's clearly in another realm. He could just be turned into a tree, and then you have to communicate with the tree. But I guess they're kind of taking a shot in the dark here by saying maybe he's trapped in some sort of purgatory, and we're going to be able to communicate with him through this toadstool. No, I, I took the impression to mean that the the magical barrier that they're talking about is the fact that he's now a tree, that he's been transformed by magic, and so mm-hmm. he's kind of in this slumber state as a tree, and that but this mushroom would allow them to communicate to him while he was in this magical form i think he's i don't think there's any sort of transformation there i mean this is you know in the in lots of the uh as you know the the legends of of arthur merlin was turned into a tree so yeah. i i believe that's actually what they are what they are uh, going with yeah and this will not be the uh the last time we'll be mentioning how they decided to stick with some pieces of the Arthurian canon uh, and we'll, we'll definitely see that come to fruition later on but speaking of trees uh, Arthur drops the nice piece of wisdom that the Crimson Crown is in a place called and I'm, I'm going to butcher the French so I'll just move on to the English translation which is the Forest of Eternal Night uh, and David immediately this immediately I mean he's been kind of like He's been a little weird this entire scene. He's kind of just been in the corner with his eyes darting around everywhere. And it turns out that I think he's just very uh, quest trigger happy. So once he hears about the possibility of going to go fetch something, he is unbelievably <laughs> excited to do so. Yeah, he, he, he wants he wants to get out of the castle. <laughs> I mean, uh, slash become relevant. And I mean, I know I know we got a super meta moment in the premiere with with you know, Leroy saying, you know, we've been on the sidelines for far too long. I would argue this might be like the second most meta moment in the show, because this is basically David saying like, okay, the last big thing I did was kiss Snow White. I've been doing nothing since. And now is my chance to do something. Yeah. I I almost got the feeling that in the first episode, you, you had like the, the the writers kind of acknowledged the fact that they did sideline the dwarves for a majority of the past couple seasons. And, uh, and I, th- I think maybe they got some of the feedback that, you know what, David and Mary Margaret actually haven't been doing a whole lot either. So yeah. so maybe it's like, you know what, let, let's give let's let's have a David centric episode. Yeah. Uh, so as David 
walks off, not really telling his family or friends what he's doing. But Arthur, Arthur knows exactly what's going on. As we, we find out they're very, very similar, both in their upbringing and their mentalities. So he decides to join them. Now, Kurt, did you have any initial reactions when Arthur just randomly decides to join David to go into this forest? Uh, no, I kind of expected it a little bit, actually. Uh, it, there, there were some, there were some, bro down moments earlier in, in when they were looking for the you know the the uh the the ingredients <laughs> when they were when they were looking for the the ingredients in in merlin's in merlin's room and stuff like that mm-hmm. so i was i was half expecting this to happen and I, and I was getting very early kind of let's bro down vibes uh and sure enough he, he followed through <laughs> Also, I totally agree with you that like Arthur definitely seemed a little bit off this episode. I think warning sign number one for me was in this first scene. He walks in uh, like David had said, you know, like, you, you know, your mother's right. Emma, you can't use magic. And then Arthur walks in. And he's like, mm, saying a woman's right, David. Good on you. And it's like, what? What a douche. <laughs> yeah. No, part, at, at certain points during the episode, I was feeling a little bit like like, you know, David was uh was pledging a frat and then this was maybe just one big one you know the, the quest for the crimson crown was just a big uh big involved intricate hazing ritual but uh we'll but we, we see we see where that ends up yeah if if david has to get a tattoo after getting the crimson crown i think that that simile would be totally appropriate yes so let's take a little break from the uh the david arthur action though and let's go to the wherever Regina is, I don't know. All these rooms kind of look the same in Camelot. Um, but we have some, some interesting Robin Regina Zelina stuff. And I know we talked last week about where the hell Zelina went. And it turns out we get a little bit of an update here, uh, which was apparently in the corner, just sitting there in the corner mute. Uh, and those yeah. should become unmuted for like three minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, we get a little bit more of the whole, uh, I just wanted to, you know, be in a place with my, you know, with my child. So I, you know, somebody would love me and, 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 you know, Regina says, you know, you, you're taking the, you're taking the baby away from Robin when you do that, you know, that's not right. And I, I do like that, you know, Zelina says she wants a second chance and it's like, you had a second chance. You had a second, second chance, which, which I'm sure you thought as well is probably a great idea for the next season of Survivor. Forget third time's a charm. No, Survivor's like, second, second chances. I think that flows a lot more smoothly. <laughs> second, second chances. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the end of this kind of like interaction after Regina's already shut Zelina up again, and you know, Regina says to her, I'll make sure that your baby is fine and loved and safe and but not so much, you know, you know, you. But yeah. I'm like wondering why antagonize Zelina at this point? Like I, it could I, only I, lead to bad things. Yeah, I honestly don't know. I mean, again, we've I guess we've had the pleasure of three months away from this show. But I mean, I guess if we binge it and we sort of contextualize everything in the moment in the timeline that it was occurring, I'm assuming Regina would still be insanely bitter towards Zelina about all the trickery she played with killing Marion and masquerading as her and getting pregnant with Robin's child. So I can imagine the situation that she's in. I think it's just we had some breathing room away from the situation and she hasn't so far. Yeah, and I keep forgetting, I have to keep reminding myself that this isn't just Zelina. This is her sister. And and it's like your sister is now pregnant with your man's baby, and yeah. and, so, and so there's probably that little extra bit doesn't help. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back to the round table because uh, this is our first mention. First, we you know we get some exposition here about Arthur's cool uh, weapon wall, and then we we talk a little bit about the recently slain Percival, and luckily. 
Not only did we have no knights die this episode, Kurt, we had one actually come back to life. Uh, so I guess that add plus one in the column of knights there. Oh, yeah. Uh, but this is when we get the introduction of the titular object this episode, which is the Siege Perilous, which is a slightly larger chair <laughs> in the round table. It's French for a big chair. <laughs> Basically. Um, and it's a slightly larger chair at the round table that goes to the person with the Go figure, the purest heart. I feel like that's like the running theme. Like something, those, the, the spoils always go to the people with the purest heart here in Once Upon a Time. Not the strongest or the smartest. It's the purest hearts. Yeah. It, it, the chair does, it's, it's an ugly chair. Can I just say no, that? No, it's a horribly <laughs> ugly chair. I had a feeling, you know, I, I could totally imagine, again, since Arthur kind of turns out to be a douche this episode, that he was like, Oh, well, we only have 12 chairs. Okay, you know what? Bring in that one from the basement that we, you know, has the wobbly leg that we don't use. Okay, well, yeah, we'll get, we'll call it, it's a special chair. It's the Siege Perilous for the Purious Heart. Yeah, just, just put it in. Make, I want to make it look aesthetically pleasing. I thought that maybe when they were de- decorating the Camelot man cave, which this room basically is, because all the weapons are there, and I thought maybe like there was like a misdelivery by the furniture company, and it's like, well, we'll just make it work because, hey, free chair. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, man, this chair is supposed to have the zebra print on it. I do like that we see later. I, I do like that the round table has grooves in it for you to put your sword. Yeah. That's, that's kind of cool. And I, I mean... You know, I, it really tests also the knowledge of everyone's crests. I feel almost like a Podrick Payne here in terms of like, there are no names on each chair. You just hang your crest on the back of it. So you have to remember whose chair it is so that you're not sitting in the wrong one. Yeah, getting a little ahead of ourselves, but on that point, uh, A, it's like, well, it's lucky that, that, you know, David now has the big chair because his crest doesn't really stand out a whole lot. No, it's just a bunch of, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think all the crests are like the same white shield, but his has some nice flowers on it, which I don't know where that came from, but okay. Yeah, and like a lion type thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, all right, what what stock Game of Thrones-like clip art can we put on this shield right now? Yeah, they, just like the, the same interns that come up with the hashtags for the Amazing Race probably came up with the, uh, the, uh, the, the screen printing for the different coats of arms for the round table. For some reason, I imagine these interns are in some sort of like saw like environment where they're in this really dingy dungeon like bathroom and they're like chained to the wall and they're like, all right, you won't be able to get your gruel unless you come up with 50 Amazing Race team hashtags before the night is done. Attention, Nate. You thought this class would be three easy credits. But what you (laughs) didn't realize was that you signed up to develop hashtags for a reality TV show. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and is the what would the mascot with the instead of jigsaw is it like a sheldon cooper puppet <laughs> i like to still think of it's jigsaw <laughs> it's still jigsaw they, they hired him yeah some movies are i guess you know he was probably probably wound up at somebody's garage sale so he brought it wholesale uh but going back here to the the round table we get some more background here on arthur as well where and this is where i alluded to the uh, arthurian canon he tells this story which i know at least I've, I heard it from the musical Camelot, which is that Lancelot stole Guinevere away from Arthur, uh, which was a cause of strife between them. I, but though I think that's, in, that's canon. In, that is canon. Oh, it's canon. Okay. So I know in Camelot, like Lancelot was basically like a knight that was outsourced and brought into the round table, whereas I'm, I'm not sure what his regular story is. Um, but it seems that it's also like a really interesting conversation because first he talks about like how bitter he is about it and then david says oh yeah we saw lancelot the other day and arthur just really perks up and he goes like oh really what what what's going on how's he doing i'm not i'm not jealous i'm not jealous at all i don't care 
you don't need to talk about him. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's uh, – oh, by the way, yeah, he died. Yeah. Oh, actually, I'm sorry to tell you uh, he's dead. And again, Kurt, I, mean, I think this is one of the rules of our Once Upon a Time podcast that every time we officially say someone's dead, they're not dead. And we'll definitely get to that later. But uh, Once Upon a Time itself seems to do the same thing of saying someone is absolutely dead and then they're not dead at all. I was unsure. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't see Lancelot coming back. That that actually surprised me uh, when it happened. I thought that there was going to be more of the story, maybe around the chair, and that you know, okay, well, what's this? Okay, for the purest of heart, okay, who? Well, obviously, the next question is who used to sit there. Oh, Lancelot. Oh, uh, by the way, yeah, him. Um, and I thought maybe that's where it was going to be left off. So uh, I, I do have to admit, I was surprised by the return of Lancelot. What if Lancelot was the chair? What if Lancelot is Akora again? He did. She's like fooled you again. Nope, it's, it's, I'm, I'm still Cora. Uh, I guess any way they want her, they they. I think they love Cora and they want to keep bringing her back in any way possible. That's why we had that flashback uh, episode last season. But yeah, I. Uh, it, it's it's interesting. I guess the the only thing that made me think that he he wasn't exactly dead was, admittedly, I know you don't follow casting spoilers, Kurt, but it did seem like they had a big announcement this summer of who was playing Lancelot. And I thought there's a chance this could be like a Bell's Mother situation where there's a big deal made out of casting and there's only they're only in one episode. But I would have expected him to be in more than just that one scene in that one episode. Yeah, I was yes, I I did not catch the uh, the casting so. Uh... I was I was I was surprised. So we get the introduction here also of the reliquary and what it looks like. And we'll talk much more about the reliquary in the present day storyline. Uh, and this is where we also get the introduction uh, of our maybe actually maybe I should go back about the our night roster being uh, in, in the plus column because we do lose Griff this episode. So I think things kind of settle back. <laughs> He's just a squire. He doesn't count. Yeah, um, but so we see Grip and we got introduction to the Reliquary, so there's some nice breadcrumbs there. And inside there is the tool that Arthur will use, which is the, uh, what was it, like the torch of like unquenchable flame or something? It's, it's a torch that will never never go out. Yeah, it, it, apparently he's, it's part of the uh, the burning bush itself is uh, is what, what, what Arthur said. Wait, uh, you, did he? I, I didn't miss that. Did he really say that? I'm pretty sure he said that. Oh, um, I did. I, I think we actually talked about this before about what they're like biblical... Uh, legends were part of this world. I guess they are. You know what? I, I could be making it up, but I, I thought that he had said that. Because I, I, I rewound it to see if, there, whether, if I could pick out anything else in the chest, in the reliquary. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that I spotted, which was actually there, is like one of those puzzles, like what, what's what gone missing? Uh, yeah. uh, the the golden apple of discord. Uh, oh, was in, the, in like the um the the Greek myth, the Greek yeah, myth, Eris and the and and yeah, uh, I believe that I believe that was in the ch- that's what we saw in the chest as well. It probably is like you know whenever we went to uh, you know Rumpelstiltskin's palace and we saw like Thor's hammer there at one point during one of the seasons. Yeah. Uh, it was, I doubt that's necessarily going to come into play with anything, but uh, I, I was I was trying to see like what other kind of nifty little things did this magical. You know, warehouse thirteen of a chest contain. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, season five B of Once Upon a Time will be a double feature of biblical stories and Greek mythology. There we go. <laughs> so let's let's go into the forest of eternal darkness uh, as we really get to see the bro down really coalesce here when they're talking about like you're a peasant. No, I was a peasant too, man. Oh man, that's great. Wait, you you have you have a wife? 
You treat your wife the same way, dude. No way. I feel like I feel like we're connecting here, man. Yeah, it's uh, oh, she's good with an arrow. Maybe we should have them. I don't know. Let's have them like fight and like so we can see like which one's better or not fight, but yeah. like you know, a contest. Yeah, dude, and I'll like I'll fill a basin full of gelatin. Uh, just just thinking all the top of my head here, man. I think it'd be really fun. Uh, it, it was getting a little. It, it was getting a little heavy. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, I'm broy. It was super broy. Yeah. Um, at least that gets quieted down a little bit when they actually reach the clearing where the Crimson Crown is, which is, of course, in true fairy tale fashion, on this like glimmering mossy rock that has the weirdest. I, I almost thought it was a dock at first, but it is a bridge. It's just several t- pieces of wood that are perfectly still in the water leading up to it. It's high tide. It's high tide, but here's the okay. So here's the thing: David steps on it and automatically assumes, okay, both of us can't be on it. But we'll see very later on when he's fighting the zombie knights and Arthur saves him that both of them are on the bridge and it's fine. Yeah, it could have it could have worked out. Hey, it definitely could have worked out. There's room for both of them on there, unlike the on Titanic with Rose. I was going to yeah. say, David is such a Rose right now. And and I was trying to look this up while we were uh, recording here, but then like little pop ups started to come up, and I was afraid it was going to play some audio that we didn't need. Uh, but the Forest of Eternal Night is that where Rapunzel was held? They went to get Night Root. Um, oh yeah. Uh, I don't. And I'm trying because I tried looking it up on the Once Upon a Time wiki uh, where Rapunzel was held, but uh, it it. I was afraid that there'd be some annoying commercial to play in the background, but I thought that we had maybe been to this, this forest before in a previous scene or something. Yeah, I, I could definitely imagine that. I mean, it, it does feel like something that they, the writers would previously use. So, I mean, I'll leave it up to you fantastic listeners. Uh, they're always so great at researching these things. If, if you guys know any or remember anything, please let us know. I'm sure it was used. If it was, I mean, it'd be interesting if it, if it was tied into the Rapunzel storyline. Um, because then, then we get the return of Aurora, uh, which would be a lot of fun. And maybe Philip will come. Maybe, maybe Philip was one of the knights in the lake. Yeah. And it went from like being, you know, supposedly this, this, this toadstool resides in the forest of eternal night. That's, that's a swamp. We're no longer in the forest. This is much more, more of a swamp than a forest. And I did wonder if there was going to be a lady of the swamp, like there was a lady of the lake, but no dice. They're just phantom knights of the yeah. of the swamp <laughs> and also i know um i know obviously for lighting reasons you don't want to make things too dark but i'll say for the forest of eternal night pretty well lit i think these guys didn't necessarily need the torch so you could once your eyes get adjusted to the perma darkness i feel like you could navigate yourself pretty well yeah i don't know what the special magic of the torch was i don't know why a unless like all flames were snuffed out unless they were this magical flame. Maybe, maybe we don't know how dark it truly could have gotten there, Mike, because that torch was lit. Was the uh, Thirst of Unquenchable Flame taken from Lillian Morris from Survivor Pearl Islands? No. No, Mike. <laughs> Darn it. Darn it. Uh, I, I, wish I, I wish there was a way to connect Lillian Morris to Once Upon a Time. I will persist. That will be my quest. Um, so David was able to make his way across the bridge and get the Crimson Crown. And of course, you know something's going to happen. And that something is, I'm for lack of a better term, I'm going to call them zombie knights. Uh, <laughs> which, of course, on a night where the Walking Dead comes back, of course, this is a very appropriate enemy for David to fight. Yeah, they, they do refer to them as, as Phantom Knights later. Uh, okay. Arthur does. Um, yeah, but they were kind of, you, it was interesting, you did see a little bit of a tease when he was first making his way across the bridge, and like you saw it looked like a uh, 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 
Uh, what do you call it? The thing that protects your forearm. Uh, not suit of armor. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the gre- greaves or something. Um, you see that kind of floating in the water. But then there's that nice scene of all of these disparate armor pieces kind of floating and then melding into one uh, suit of armor and then coming up and attacking. I thought it was actually a nice effect. Yeah, I, th- and I thought it was like a pretty good fight scene as well. Yeah. I mean, I would say this was this was like a very good, solid adventure scene. And I, I was yeah. I was happy. And that's what usually what you get when you get David's stuff. I mean, I think the thing that the writers do is that, and I think they've sort of after five seasons figured out where everyone kind of falls is that, you know, when you have Regina, it's, it's usually more of the, the a more emotional stuff, you know, snow isn't necessarily more of the brainy stuff, but it, it's, probably something that's more fast paced whereas david it's more of like the brute action scenes even in that last david episode that i talked about uh at the beginning of season four i'm pretty sure there was like a big thing where him and anna were like fighting slews of people all around bo peep's house so if you want like i feel like they bring in the the big action uh stunt doubles and action directors for the one david episode a year david's happiest when he's adventuring so let's 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 give him an adventure at least once a season Absolutely. And then here's your uh, here's your Harry Potter reference of the week. I think David falling into the water and getting dragged down. Totally like the Inferi from Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I just been a long time, Mike Bloom. It was the uh, so fast forward this about a minute if you don't want <laughs> Harry Potter spoilers. But uh, it's when when Harry and Dumbledore go to the cave uh, with the first Horcrux when they have to drink the water out of the basin. And then on the way back, there's these Inferi, which are these like basically like these these sort of reanimated demon creatures that, uh, that, that were that were pr- supposed to protect the locket and so harry basically falls out of the boat and they start dragging him underwater and then dumbledore basically fights him off with a bunch of fire i, I was going more goblet of fire gillyweed in terms of the whole underwater thing that that's as far as i could get in the uh yeah, any I sort mean, of that, reference that, it's fairly accurate as well i mean the mer people were very hostile towards them during the triwizard tournament but uh welcome back to those of you that <laughs> do not want harry potter spoilers so arthur reaches in and saves him as as bros do and they you know david's find out he lost the crimson crowd and he was he's pretty pissed off about it though arthur like pulls out like the schmaltziest stuff to try to cheer him out basically saying it's not about it's not about the destination it's the journey man that's what quests are about it's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's the losses that teach us to be brave. Yeah, he's basically taking the taking words from those like inspirational posters you see around your office. Yeah, he's you know bumper sticker philosopher. Yeah, hang in there. You're like a kitten hanging off a branch. Yeah, it's uh, it, 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 I'm I'm glad that things ended up where they did with Arthur because it made this part seem. It, it seemed like he was laying it on thick and I'm, and you know what it turns out that he was. <laughs> yeah. I will say, you know, if we're considering Arthur a villain thus far, I'd say he's probably the smarmiest villain we've had thus far. I mean, I feel like if you count Rumpelstiltskin, he definitely has a way with words as well. But this guy, for lack of a better term, is, is starts, starts to come off as sleazy in terms of this. And we'll see the scene with Griff later where he's basically saying like, no, you're doing this for you're doing it for Camelot if you drink this poison. So I feel like Arthur's power is going to be held not in like any magical ability like we've seen in the past some odd years, but more so in the words that he uses in his coercion skills. Yeah, it's um, and when we when we get to kind of the. The, the final scene of the episode in, in modern day with Arthur. I'll talk a little bit more about um, 
what my perspective on him is as a, as a villain. So Arthur, after all that inspirational talk, has a place, just, just knows the perfect place for David. And it is not only becoming a knight and sitting at the round table. No, Kurt, he is sitting in the Siege Perilous itself. I almost fell off my couch. I was rolling my eyes so hard. I was like, what? Yeah. Can you imagine how cheesed off the other knights must be? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, all like three of them that are alive still. But yeah, I would. I, if I was one of those knights, I would be pissed off. And when we see Griff later be like, you know, Arthur came up with the false reasoning that like Arthur treated us horribly. I wanted to get revenge on the king. I'm like, well, that makes sense because this guy is a douche who decides to promote the guy that he just met that day to become one of the most prestigious members of the council. I mean, the... It's a, there were quite a few knights. I mean, there were quite a few swords on the table. There were quite a few people standing behind chairs. Um, so I think it's actually a pretty full roster uh, at the at the table. And it was, it was interesting that he um, you started to get a little bit into the geography of the fairy tale world, where he's acknowledged as you know you know Prince Charming of the basically the realm of the enchanted forest, and mm-hmm. that you're. You're, I know you're a knight, and it's not as awesome as being a prince. Uh, but he, you know, Arthur earlier acknowledges that there's many people who are rulers in their own kingdoms who are also knights at this table, uh, and so it's it seems like they kind of pull people from across this this world, uh, even though they may be kings or princes or or leaders in their own particular corner of uh, of this world. I used to refer to the whole thing as the Enchanted Forest, and now it almost seems like, no, the Enchanted Forest is technically where Charming and company are from. I mean, Camelot yeah. is almost distinct from the Enchanted Forest, and almost like we need like a better name for this overall world, which I've just been broadly and generically calling the Enchanted Forest. Yeah, it seems like almost the way this roundtable focuses is almost like the UN in terms of he and yeah. Arthur talks about this earlier of like let me I I talk to like princes from different realms and they bring in uh you know they send the representatives so basically David is I guess the representative for whatever is left of the enchanted forest that's true yeah. So as the celebration's going on, Snow has to step out to care for her child, but she sees someone uh, slipping into the shadows, and it turns out, as we talked about before, it is the return of Blancelot, and I'm not sure if he's there just to tell her to watch out for Arthur, or if he's actually doing something there. I guess we'll find that out next week, but if he is, I feel like that's a long way to go and a lot of stuff to risk in order to just tell someone that Arthur's might be up to no good. I mean, she also pretty much admits that, oh yeah, and the Dark One's our daughter. So they, they do a pretty you know fair exchange of incriminating information. Yeah, I was going to say, like, hey, you know, Mary Margaret, remember when you all, you know, you spent this entire last episode with this, this entire Three's Company premise of trying to say that Regina is the savior? Uh, now you completely blew that by seeing, like, the first guy you knew and telling him, oh, yeah, my daughter's the dark one. So how's everything with you? Yeah, it's, um, and I, I don't know. It, it seems like Lancelot's being awfully conspicuous, dressing, like, you'll put on, like, a big cloak or something, or yeah. you know, dress as a a peasant or someone that the someone that the the royalty of Camelot will just overlook. So you know, just yeah. dress as a peasant or a servant, and uh, and maybe maybe they won't notice you. But no, don't don't go in, in full knight's regalia. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true because he's also. I mean, if he was the previous occupant of the Siege Perilous, he was basically like the MVP of the knights for a long time. So if he was dressed in that manner, he'd obviously be immediately recognized for it. He wanted to be there at the beginning of the ceremony, but he was recognized by so many people. He had to sign autographs and he got there late and 
you know, by the, the door is closed by that time. So he's looking for like the side entrance. Yeah, he's basically the equivalent of uh, like a celebrity trying to go into like a Starbucks really quickly and just getting flagged because yeah. everyone knows who they are. Has to escape out through back to the kitchen. Absolutely. So our last little flashback scene here is a rather poignant one between Arthur and Guinevere. And it really contextualizes a little bit of what Blancelot was talking about in terms of saying, you know, Arthur is not what he seems. He's another villain. Uh, And, you know, it turns out, A, he swiped the Crimson Crown, which I personally saw coming from like, ever since Arthur gives that look to David walking across the bridge, I thought either A, he's going to leave him or B, he's going to end up taking the the Crimson Crown. And it turns out to be the latter. But he does vocalize that he feels bad about it, but he keeps rationalizing that it's for the good of the kingdom, which I think will get really, really interesting later on when it turns out his big master plan is to build a Camelot in Storybrooke. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I was a little unclear on why he needed the toadstool in Camelot. Like if the goal was to free Merlin, it seemed like that's a mutual goal of, of, you know, regardless of what Arthur's, uh, you know, desires are, he, I think he also wants Merlin free. Um, so I was confused as to why he ended up needing the toadstool. Maybe sort of like the, maybe he wants to control the communication Maybe he's afraid that Merlin might let something slip that would turn them against oh. him. And as he's going to show in the present day storyline, he's all about the intricacies of earning people's trust. I mean, I would actually think, I think I previously said that like Mr. Gold might make the best survivor player of the entire cast here. I feel like now King Arthur might be a close second in terms of his ability so far to manipulate people and control certain communication areas. So I would think that he's wants the mushroom to be able to say like if if you know if he trusts Merlin he'll say oh look what i found let's talk to Merlin now but now he's sort of earned david's trust without risking Merlin getting on the line and saying something incendiary against him. So, you know, even though it's, wouldn't, it would be against canon, maybe Arthur's actually responsible for Merlin being a tree, and that's what the incriminating thing is. Maybe he just wants to plant the toadstool in Zelina's bag so that when David loses a fit and can't find his toadstool, he'll find it in a different bag, and he's like, oh, you, you F with me and I'll kill you. Yeah, I can totally. I mean, Zelina is slowly becoming like the Jerry Gergich slash Toby of Once Upon a Time, so I feel like people could really pin things on Zelina if they want to get yeah. away with something. Cause everyone will just yell at her. I'm just, I'm, I'm just hoping for him to recreate the Abby Maria PG drama. That's really all yes, I'm looking for. Exactly. Mushroom gate. Yes. So let's jump to the present day here as speaking of the mushroom, uh, Regina, we're starting to, you know, in, in another episode of we lost our memories and we don't know what to do. Regina is looking at the book in which she very pointedly in the flashback scene, put a question mark on a piece of paper on the same page as the crimson crown. And, you know, thank God that piece was there because I, I do not think she would have known what that was, or we wouldn't be able to identify it without that question mark being there <laughs> with the uh, Camelot post-it note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'll, uh, I'll be honest. I usually don't utilize notes in that way. I can't admit. I'll admit I, I did not go through college reading my textbooks. And if I had a question, I would just put a question mark on a piece of paper and stick it on that page. But, you know, Regina has has her ways and she's the new savior. So I guess we have to go with her methods. Yeah, I'm not going to. It's it's magic. I can't necessarily do anything with it. I mean, I think even, you know, going I mean, the very fact that I, I don't think that that Arthur simply having the toadstool will allow him to communicate with Merlin. I mean, there's magic that still needs to be involved. 
but yeah, maybe, maybe just kind of going back to that, maybe, yeah, maybe he just seeks to control, uh, like he, he, it seems like maybe through that magic, only the, only one person will communicate with, be able to communicate with Merlin where he wants, if, if anything's going to happen, Merlin's going to be transformed and we all get to talk to him. I don't know. But yeah, the, uh, the, I, I question the question mark. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess it all ends up working out, but uh, enough time for that. We'll see her much later on yeah. the, the question mark as well. The dwarves come in and they are pissed and we'll talk later about Emma stealing Happy's ax, but they're basically angry that, you know, I would I say they're, I would say they're grumpy. <laughs> well, one of them is, even though he'd rather be dreamy. Uh, but they're still they're angry, basically saying, "Listen, David, you're the sheriff, and you're doing nothing about it because the Dark One is your daughter." Which I'd say is like a half truth because while the Dark One is his daughter, they also have no idea how to fight Emma. So really, like they have their hands are tied either way. Uh, but this does not stop David from being very sulky and angry as he starts kicking everything around him. They're they're also like. Interestingly, like I said, it's not just they, they don't know how to fight her. They don't know how to find her. And like, yeah. they, which is interesting because Hook has conversed with her. Henry's conversed with her. Regina's conversed with her. Pretty much it seems like everyone's conversed with Emma except for her parents. Yeah, basically, which I mean, again, maybe maybe that trust is still on thin ice after the uh, the story arc they went through last half season with you traded Maleficent's uh, child for me. But petulant Emma. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, thank God. I mean, I don't know. I guess if if we have to trade Petulant Emma for Petulant David, I guess that's a fair trade. Uh, considering this is very short-lived, he sort of acts like a moody teenager for about a minute until Arthur comes in and says, oh, by the way, my magical museum has, has is missing a bean. Yeah. yeah our reliquary, your what? It's a yeah. place where our magical relic is stored. But <laughs> I was like, yeah. your reliquary, what is it? It's a place where magical artifacts are stored, but that's not important right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, by the way, I have a bunch of magical stuff that could probably help you later on, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Yeah, the, um, the magic. When they said that the magic bean was missing, I was like, oh no, not not bean stocks again. This this thing seemed these things seem to like multiply every time they say, and you know, I think it was it Regina who ended up like torching the crops that Jorge Garcia's character was trying to grow at one point. So they they only had a couple left. But it seems like again, whenever it's convenient, they're like. Oh yeah, and there's a magic bean over there somewhere. And then they also had a magic bean with them, so they were saved. To be fair, though, fast forwarding, there was never a bean. <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> there is no that's bean. True. Maybe there is no bean, Neo. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I feel like uh, I don't know. I feel like Neo would have probably done a better job seeing through Arthur's BS than David did. Yeah. <laughs> but David is still, you know. An, I, I guess maybe he's getting like sense memories of growing down in the past. So he's very uh, eager to jump on another quest to help Arthur as they, they go back to the, to, you know, the Superdome, I guess, if we're making the FEMA comparison of, for, for our Camelot people. And we look at the reliquary and it turns out, yes, there might be a bean missing. Who knows if we're to believe it. Um, but David has a sort of plan uh, and it involves basically lying out of his ass. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and they needed they need to get a, a a they need to basically fool the person who stole it. Uh, and let's, let's use a let's use another magical artifact that we're just making up on the spot. Yeah, which I mean, I actually kind of liked because I think it's actually. I mean, again, this is sort of like I'm thinking of like the the witch burning scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail of like showing how basically the Camelotians are extremely naive, and if you raise any sort of important object and you say like this will detect 
who farted. So whoever farted, you will it'll tell you who you are. Like judging from basic human psychology, if somebody makes a face or changes their reaction or I don't know, runs away, that person most likely did it. Yeah, which is which is going to be more so. You know, long story short, he goes to the pawn shop and gets uh, the Doctoberfest mug. Yes, which was pretty awesome, to be completely honest. It's like that's not magic. It's it's from from Doc's Doctoberfest birthday celebration. Oh my god! Which again, I have to keep asking. How, when do they have the time to celebrate these things? It always seems like they're running around. It must be a summer birthday. It was in the off, so. in the off yeah. season. Um, but yeah, it's like we're going to pretend that this is what the, the Chalice of Vengeance or something. Chalice of Chalice of Vengeance. Yes. And um, I don't know which which is going to make you. If, if there was a hundred percent certainty that running away from the chalice would make me look guilty versus a 90% certainty that it would work. Uh, and that I could maybe say, no, there's gotta be something wrong. It's not functioning. Right. Like he, 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 he chose poorly in terms of running. Yeah. yeah though I guess, I don't know. I mean, it seemed, we know now that Arthur briefed Griff on this entire plan. I'm like, you're basically, you're going to be my fall guy on this con operation. So I guess did Arthur kind of brief him by saying like, no matter what David does, you need to present yourself very clearly as the main suspect. So I, I gained their trust as a result. Yeah. I was trying not to think about that too much when we go back and see like between Griff running away from the chalice and between, uh, Arthur learning how to drive a truck <laughs> in like 10 seconds. Like, like, like I was trying to think, well, okay, now if they're in this together, does he actually want him to catch Griff or should Griff get away? And that extends like the, and like he should have like maybe, you know, turn the truck really sharply and had David fall off of it. And then Griff gets away. I try not to think too, too much about the previous events. Uh, once we learned that David, once we yeah. learned that Arthur and Griff were in cahoots, but I don't know. But yeah, I, I was just thinking this, this purely, Running away makes you look much more suspicious than I think sitting there and taking drinking from the chalice. I agree, though. At least if you're going to try to leave, try to do it as like surreptitiously as possible. Don't do an immediate face turn and flop your big cloak in the breeze so that everyone can see it. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't exactly subtle either. So again, this is a David episode, so we get some action stuff in Storybrooke as well as it's horse versus pickup truck. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a... Um, there's a great show. I can't remember what channel it's on. Um, and I think it's only in, in reruns now or on, on DVD. Uh, Deadliest Warrior, I believe it is. Where they, oh, yeah, I remember that. We, where they're like, what would happen if a ninja faced off against a knight? Exactly. And then they, they, they compare the, the, the styles of fighting and the weaponry. And this is exactly the same thing, except a much, much, much more obvious answer. Yes, it's in horse versus horsepower. You have to assume that horsepower will win. Though it turns out it's not so much horsepower as it is horsepower and David wielding a giant piece of wood. Yeah, I thought he was going to maybe like try to like drive up alongside him and tackle him. But no, it turned into jousting. And like, <laughs> I'm surprised that he's still alive, Griff. Yes. Well, still alive from the uh, from, <laughs> like from the, the 10 minutes. From the, yeah, the two by four <laughs> to the chest. Um, I don't know how they maneuvered things so that they were actually charging head on towards each other, which is why I was expecting. Yeah, I'm not sure how that worked either. <laughs> um, but I was yeah, expecting more from, but you know, actually we said that it seems like there's, you know, horsepower wins out of a horse, but you have grip who you have to assume is a very, very seasoned horse rider versus Arthur driving a oh, truck. Yeah. So actually that might even, that should have actually evened up the playing fields a whole lot. Yeah, that's very true. And I, I agree. I don't know how, 
they ended up getting so turned around. Maybe they were like in an enclosing and Griff wanted to like double back and go out the way he came. But I thought for a second when David pulled out that the the large uh, plank that he was going to like hit the horse. And I got really scared for the horse that he was just going to kind of whack the horse off its legs and Griff would get caught underneath it. Yeah, I... Uh- I, I Griff got beat up a lot this episode. Yeah, I mean Griff is kind of the butt monkey of this episode. That wasn't Zelina, uh, but Griff is Griff is interrogated though. I mean, he very it's a very quick interrogation. It is it's. I told you I had I didn't see a bean, and then basically they say, oh, "Do you believe him?" Yeah, I do. Okay, I guess that's it. Yeah, I did see like um, where I start. I was starting to like wonder what was going on. Is that he said that he wanted to hurt the king? And that he was tired of how we were all being treated. When earlier in the episode, in the flashback, we saw, you know, Arthur was saying, well, I used to be a peasant. And so we treat the, you know, we treat, uh, you know, our our subjects very fairly. Um, which is why, you know, if Lancelot had dressed himself up, actually, you know, as a server or a, a peasant in the castle, he actually might have stood out. I don't think that they're just overlooked and ignored. Um, so I was a little bit surprised to hear Grip explain uh, his discontent. Um, but then it turns out that it probably was all just a ruse giving the, uh, given what was, uh, what, what we end up finding out is going on between Arthur and yeah. Griff. Although this, I would say, at this point, I'm uh, wondering if the bean was used in Camelot. If, if I, I didn't know if there true. was no bean or not originally, I think we kind of find out that there was never a bean there. Um, but I wonder maybe if it was like used in Camelot at some point that we haven't seen yet. Yeah, I, I I could totally see that. This this is sort of like Chekhov's bean, where it turns out that somebody uses the bean, to, and that's what's used to transport everybody. I will say maybe something that could have led mm. to the idea that maybe Griff was speaking the truth here about his defiance against Arthur was in the first time we see Griff, I mean, he brings in the reliquary and Arthur kind of gives him this dismissive look. And maybe it was like, I was led to believe at least for that one second that like, they don't have a great relationship and like Griff has to like hesitantly pull out the chair so they can look at the reliquary. So maybe I was, I read too much into that reaction though. It turns out to be all for naught in about five minutes from now. Yeah. It's uh uh yeah griff <laughs> nothing to say griff. but oh griff yeah but they're able to you know again again in a very big parallel to the flashbacks david is angry that you know he wasn't able to get what he wanted though they find something fine along the way uh they find the crimson crown just sort of lying there um and he says oh i guess i kind of again sense memory i guess i kind of recognize this we go down to the crypt first time we see in the crypt this season yep. which is fun um and it's shown to snow and regina it turns out yep that is the crimson crown and they they believe they used it in the past to communicate with merlin and i'm going to assume that the next couple episodes will revolve around them trying to get the magic out of the crimson crown again to talk with merlin so i guess we're to believe that because this was kind of in the in the what i'll call the blank space portion of time in camelot not to conjure taylor swift all of a sudden um that in modern day storybook if arthur saw the crimson crown he wouldn't necessarily know its significance because he his memory was wiped of that its significance from that time in camelot yeah. Okay. I, I guess so. <laughs> like, oh yeah. And, and, but you did raise a good point though. Earlier is we don't know how they all ended up back in Storybrooke. Maybe that could very well have been the bean in some manner. Yeah. I. I mean. I. I'm honestly. And maybe this is me too much leaning into the whole like now. Arthur's the big bad thing. Maybe Arthur 
is faking that he's lost his memory. Maybe he knows absolutely everything that that happened and he's just planting objects here and there to lead people along a path of believing in false memories. I, I, there were a couple points where I was wondering that too, especially towards the end of this episode where he's talking to Griff in, in prison and kind of trying to spell out for him, here's all the reasons we can't trust these people. And some of it seemed like things that he may not, maybe shouldn't have remembered. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, one of the I mean, it is also kind of cheesy the end of this scene in the crypt because it's just a shot of Mary Margaret being like, you're like, David, you did it. And then you see this like kind of doofy smile spread on David's face. I'm like, that's all you wanted, man. You just wanted your wife to say good job. That's all you needed in your life. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, (laughs) But let's get to the big turning point of this episode, which is the scene between Arthur and Griff in the jail, which Griff, I mean, you ended up in the jail cell. You probably had a 75% chance of dying anyway, because that's usually what happens to everyone who goes in there. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you're in the right hand cell. Things don't go well in the right hand cell. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Arthur comes to visit him. And of course, Griff says, okay, you're going to free me now. And he spills that it's, as we've talked about many times in the past several minutes, it's all about a plan that they, that Arthur gave him of, you're going to, you know, steal something and we're going to, pretend to arrest you and everything in an effort for him to trust in uh, the heroes or for them to trust in him, I should say, uh, because he is pissed off. And again, I don't know if this is him speaking out of his ass or whether it's true. He's pissed that they lied about, they, they lied to all of them about Emma and that they brought someone dangerous into their home. Uh, so now their plan is to new Camelot is Storybrooke. Apparently that's, that's the big plan right now. Yeah. And it's pretty, although, you know, and this is where I'll, I'll take a step back and say, I don't really think a lot of what Arthur is saying makes sense um, and doesn't seem all that threatening. Let's take aside, you know, set aside for a moment, the whole poisoning of Griff. Um, but in terms of, you know, he's trying to make Excalibur, he, back in Camelot, he was trying to make Excalibur whole again. And, you know, you, you, it seems like he knew you need the Dark One's dagger to complete that. And these people are hunting the Dark One. So, you know, we'll, we'll work alongside them. And then if he finds out that, you know, they they lied to him and that the, the daughter's actually the Dark One, there's some anger there. Now his entire village is, is transported here and he doesn't know why. There's There's not a lot, I mean, other than, you know, taking the toadstool, which I'm not really sure what the motivation for that is. He hasn't done a lot of evil or bad things. Like, I'm not sure what the, um, uh, the, 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 I'm not even sure what the, the theft of the reliquary was meant to accomplish other than convincing David that there's a magic bean that was stolen when the magic bean was never there in the first place. So why, bring it up. Um, the only two things that really are like, okay, well, well, hold on, Arthur are a, he's going to turn storybook into Camelot, which is like, you know, who doesn't like a Renaissance festival? It's already kind of like yeah. a Renaissance festival. Like, we, don't, yeah. we don't know that this means like something out of, you know, the, the, the most recent Avengers movie where, you know, the, you know, an entire like town sized castle is going to just drop from the sky yeah. and, and and splat everything. And that would just be one huge castle where Storybrooke was like, we don't really know what this means. Like, it's not like the entire town is going to be covered with glass shards or frozen over. Um, so I'm still kind of like, well, what do you mean you want this to be Camelot? Um, but the whole poisoning of Griff thing, I was like, that was uncalled for. 
Yeah, well, speaking of which, uh, so we get mentioned here of the Agrabah Vipers, which I looked it up. I don't think we've heard mention of them since Sydney's yeah. origin episode back in like season one uh, for like the extremely deadly Vipers. So I guess they're part of, you know, they're they're sort of canon. Uh, but it's interesting that they brought that up, you know, four years later that they still remembered that that was a thing. Yeah, they went to the wiki and it was like, oh, well, poisons. Um, OK, and. Uh, was one of the effects of this that you just vanish in a puff of smoke? I don't know. <laughs> they very rarely do dead bodies stay dead bodies on Once Upon a Time. Magic usually has a way of like immediately doing great cleanup on its effects. Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced that Grip is dead because there's no body. Like, I'm not sure what happened there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the minute that we're going to say Griff is dead next episode, it's going to be like, oh, no, Griff's actually in the shadows. And now he's going to communicate with the heroes. Yeah. Um, Although it's like, you know, whether or not he's a king or a cult leader, you know, Arthur does an amazing job of convincing, uh, of convincing Griff to drink the Agrabah Kool-Aid, basically. Oh, absolutely. And, and, I mean, he he really lays on this for the good of the, the kingdom shtick yeah. on. So and I mean, he's able he's I mean, he's able to benefit from that because he is the ruler. So he can basically get away with whatever he wants and say, well, it's for the good of the land, even though that might not, I doubt that Griff dying is for the good of the land. I mean, yes, they they might have ways to magically coerce information out of you but chances are unless it's maybe regina they're not going to do it griff doesn't seem like he's on like anyone's front burner in terms of uh leads or you know people until until they mentioned that the reliquary was taken everybody was focused on dark emma yeah <laughs> and, it's, and it's kind of to be honest it's kind of arthur's own fault that he cooked up this fake stolen reliquary uh they weren't even on the radar and in terms of if he's got some plot that he's trying to do, um, he, he would have been easily able to operate behind the scenes had he not tried to pull this stunt. Yeah, I think I mean, he's all about again, if I'm going back to the reality TV example, I think Arthur's the one that's making big moves. Yeah, uh, that he doesn't necessarily making, need to make. No, I mean, OK, I'm going to say King Arthur might be the Tony Vlacos of Once Upon a Time. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think especially with the scene with Griff in the prison, uh, I think another example of him being a good survivor player, um, but yeah, he, he's making big moves that he doesn't need to make. So I can see Does that make, is Griff, is Griff woo? Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I think he, Wait, I think he could be. Either that or David's woo. Um, you know, David's acting like a little bit of a lapdog. So yeah. I think David might be the woo. Is Emma chaos gas then? Emma might be, I think uh, Lancelot's going to be sp- is Spencer. There we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trying to take him down, the young lad, the young Lancelot. Yeah. So, so stay tuned to our uh, future <laughs> comparisons between the Once Upon a Time cast and the Survivor Kageon cast. But let's let's talk some more about some of our B plots here, uh, specifically with our Dark Swan stuff. Dark Swan did take a step back from her big. I'll say swan song uh, for, for lack of a better term in the premiere. Uh, but our first scene is with her, with the dwarves are working in the mines. I guess they're, they figured it's back to work, even though one of them was turned into a tree. And one of them very recently came back from being turned into stone. Um, and also I love Leroy's like ham handed exposition in this scene of like, look guys, I know dopey got turned into a tree and he's on the other side of town, but that means we have to work twice as hard. It's like, that means you have to work one seventh harder or something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Dopey, if, he, if Dopey lives up to his name, I don't know how good of a worker he was anyway. In the power rankings, he might have listed seventh out of seven. True. I don't know about Ding Mary. Yeah, no, I was not going to go there. <laughs> uh, but Dark Swan appears, and uh, I guess 
her first idea is to go out at this Excalibur with brute force. <laughs> so she grabs Happy's axe and she disappears in. Go figure, she t- takes a, an, just a blunt axe to this magically enchanted device and it doesn't work. Yeah, I, I like how uh, Gold basically says that's a creative path to failure. I may have, yeah. I may have to borrow that line. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that a lot. Maybe that should be an inspirational poster. Yeah. And he, he does say to her, like, no, you need a hero to pull this from the stone. And you and I both knew who that is. And I'm like, do we? <laughs> um, I mean, because we see you know, later on you, you, some of, you know, Hook and Hood uh, team. That sounds like a, it sounds like a horrible, like mid mid season cop drama. Oh, so I was thinking it's like, like a kid's Saturday morning TV show. Um, or uh, or it's a sitcom about a bris. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> moving on, uh, you know, Hook tells Hood about the you know Chekhov's cellar door that we discovered last last episode. Yes. Um, so maybe we're to believe that one. It's one of them. I mean, it almost seems like the short the path of the least resistance in terms of thinking is that oh. Uh, you need Arthur to pull the the, the sword from the stone. I, yeah. I think I even said last last week. Well, you know, if you know, you know, he or she who pulls the sword from the stone is the rightful ruler of the land. Well, yes, Arthur was the rightful ruler of Camelot, but uh, this isn't Camelot, at least not yet. And so it seems like I said, you know, to me that means Regina is the mayor of the town, so she would be the one who would be able to pull the sword from the stone. Um, but I think we've seen even more so this episode that Arthur is not the pure of heart person who needs to pull the sword from the stone. Um, but I think by the end of the episode, we at least have an idea of where Emma and the voice in her head are thinking she needs to go in terms of who mm-hmm. can pull the sword from the stone. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, and I, I mean, the ultimate person that will settle on kind of falls in this category as well. I, I'll admit, I mean, if, if I'm thinking hero, I know Hook has been on a big redemption arc since we first saw him in the first part, you know, helping Korra, trying to stop our heroes from going up the beanstalk. But like, I wouldn't still call him a hero, considering that, I mean, he still has a past as a murderous pirate. I mean, I know maybe I'm completely ignoring the message of season 4B, but I still feel like there are some other people that have possessed more. I mean, for God's sake, your dad occupied the seat of the person with the purest heart. I think he might be the first person you go to. I know, but no one remembers that. That's true. I wonder, it's also, yeah, I, I... I guess, yeah, Emma does remember it, though, right? Because doesn't she tell Regina last week? Like, uh, oh, yeah. I can't, I can't tell you why I cast the curse. Yeah, I think that's true. Everybody, I'm assuming Emma does have her memory. Uh, it's everybody yeah. else that does not. Um, I don't remember seeing Emma at that ceremony. She's probably there. She didn't have an active role at that no. ceremony, but she had to have been there. Yeah, so... So, and we go to Granny's, and this is our first uh, hook and hood scene. Uh, and probably one of the more you know, this week in Once Upon a Time characters use weird technology where I guess Zelina sent Robin a picture of the baby sonogram, uh, which I, I don't understand in so many levels. Well, no, I've seen, I mean, I've seen pictures of people who have sonograms on their iPhones. Uh, yeah, but wh- where did Zelina go? Is there, a, is there, a, is there a birth doctor in Storybrooke? When they were living together in New York and he thought she was Marion, did 
he was there a period where he knew she was married where he thought she was marrying and he knew she was pregnant i don't think so because uh, i'm pretty sure in that scene that we got when zelina reveals herself she breaks the news that she's pregnant and that's like uh, the so first fine. time robin knew of it maybe maybe nurse ratchet uh send it to him uh, I, was, I was gonna say uh you know elizabeth mitchell already if, i'm sad that elizabeth mitchell already played a character on the show because she could have very easily reprise her role as Juliet Burke and come in as the sonogram doctor. Yeah. I, I did like how uh Twig told Hook that uh it was a picture they they it was a picture from up, oh, in, yeah. up inside up inside Zelina and Hook's like good <laughs> good god man I don't want to see that <laughs> oh I love that was probably one of my favorite moments of the episode just because it's it's just like those little random things that it's a family yeah. show so the kids obviously won't pick up on it but I love the little digs there yeah. but it's it, yeah it's I mean, I, I guess, and I, I don't know if Zelina's trying to sound sentimental here or more malevolent by saying this is this is basically the, you know, this is what I'm kind of blackmailing you with. This is what I'm holding above our relationship. Uh, but Robin is understandably bummed out. But Hook is, Hook is more like, yeah, 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 enough about your problems. Let's talk about mine right now. I, I was surprised that we got as much Robin Hood this, this episode as we did. Well, and, and we'll get to it later about how I feel like there might have actually been too much use of Robin Hood this episode, uh, but let's talk about Emma's communication methods here. As <laughs> the way she decides to reach out to Hook is to have Granny drop off a takeout bag in front of him that has a note attached to it saying "Meet, meet you on your ship." Yeah, um, you know, if, if things weren't strained between them, if things were like all copacetic and they were like, and if, yeah, if Emma wasn't the dark one. Um, this might have been like, okay, cool, you know, but, you know, the fact that he doesn't trust her and yeah, everybody's looking for her and that she's evil, um, this this may not have been the best way to go about it. No, and it's also like, I think there's huge room for error. I mean, like, what if Robin had grabbed it and he's like, well, I guess my ship would be the area I control, which is the the woods. So he'll just be like wandering around the woods aimlessly looking for Emma. And Granny pretty much squarely knew that it was, you know, gave it to Hook and it was signed Emma. So I, I don't think there was any. I think I think that the, the plan was 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 mostly foolproof. And I, I, then why was why was Granny involved? I mean, did she, she had to like put the food control her? No, she was like the grub hub in this situation. She had to put the meal together and knew that basically Emma grub hubbed Granny's. So, you know, so put this together, <laughs> stick this note on it and make sure that Hook gets it. Well, okay. If I was doing this role playing here, I'd be like, okay, Granny, you're gonna have to make a make a, a picnic lunch and then put a note on it. No, you're the dark one. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Maybe she thought it was a different Emma. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no, Emma Stone. I love that actress. I'm. I'm. I will do anything for you, Emma Stone. And this is, you know, Granny's running a business. If the dark one's gonna pay the dark for food, then you know, put the dark one's meal together. You know the dark one did not pay for that. Oh. You know she promised to pay her, and then she didn't. I'm sure. You know what? I'm. Sh- I have. I have more faith in, in in Emma's you know credit score. Well, one no. One of the tenets of being the dark one is that you get to dine and dash basically anywhere you go. That's true. Like at the end, I'm not sure if we're meant to like. Well, we're not the end, but if, you know, fast forward to the ship. I'm not sure if we're meant to believe that uh, the the sp- the food spread that she made magically appears. Is that what was in the bag? Um, I don't know. Or, I'm, glad that gr- I'm glad that grilled cheese didn't get soggy while I was hanging out in that bag yeah. for who knows how long. I mean, she, technically, she could have just conjured that to begin with. That's true. Let's let's get to the Jolly Roger because I would call this whole group of scenes the emotional climax of the episode just because of how invested we've become in Hook and Emma's relationship. Um, and so, you know, Hook is 
Hook is ready to to talk facts right at the front. He says, you know, what what's the door to your house do? And Emma is very much in denial mode, as is expected. But it seems like now it's basically dark Emma trying to awkwardly flirt at this point. Uh, she's trying to, I mean, I think, I don't know why dark Emma assumes that Hook is going to be up for, you know, completely compiling into uh, willing to, to perform dark magic just at the chance of getting some tail. But Hook is understandably not going to go for the head. Yeah. I mean, and let's, again, we kind of talked a little bit about this last week in terms of, you know, if, if it's kind of inconsequential or neutral in terms of results, um, or even if it's positive, like if, if she uses her powers to heal somebody, is that use of dark magic? Is conjuring um, a pseudo-olive garden spread on the ship, is, is this a use of dark magic, or is this just, you know, regular use of magic? Um, and I, I, think we're, yeah, I think we're disposed to more and more believe that um, that you know, any use of magic is fueled by the dark side, whether regardless of what the, she taps into the darkness to have magical results, regardless of what those magical results are. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, Emma is not necessarily making her case better. I think she's, she's trying to definitely support her position of no, I'm better being the dark one by saying, you know, like I was so closed off. Now I can see clearly to the magic around me. And then, of course, Emma, just a just a tip here. If you're going to appeal to someone, don't use the example of the person who killed your lover as an example of like a person could change their ways. Yeah, and besides, although Hook does admit that you know before becoming the dark, yeah, before becoming the dark one, he was the villain in Rumpelstiltskin's life. Um, yeah, and then the tables did kind of turn a little bit, but you know, Hook freely admits. I was a villain, you know, mm-hmm. but let's not, let's not use the former, let's not use, um, uh, gold and the dark and, and the dark one in his transition is making him a better person. Yeah. I would say, I think Regina might be the, I'm, I mean, Regina's sort of the opposite, but she might be the way to go in terms of like, she's using dark magic and that she's still a, she's still a good person as a result. You know, it's again, not so black or white, but, um, a hook is definitely, unconvinced but this might lead to like one of my favorite slash heartbreaking exchanges of this episode where you know as as the conversation is wrapping up emma asks him if she loves him and you know if if he doesn't love her she'll let him go she won't bother him again and all he he just stares her down and he says i loved you and it was oh oh my god i felt i my i felt my heart just like sink when that happened and i'm not even i'm a team neil guy but even i could feel some pathos for what's going on I'm just not there yet. It's like, I, I, I felt we kind of, for me personally, that we went around that bend last time when in the last episode, when Hulk was visiting Emma in her home. And for me, that's where we kind of pretty much got the, I'm really not going, I'm, I'm not digging you anymore. And to me, this was kind of just retreading that. I was actually wondering like, what was the whole purpose of the whole ship thing? I mean, he says that she needs his trust and she needed to know, or at least wanted to know if she, if he loved her Um, between trust and love. I don't know. uh, Like, was that the, was that like the only reason that they actually got together on the boat? Like, or is there some greater purpose to knowing if she, if he trusts her, if he loves her, is that something she needs to know for some future plan? Or is it something that she just needed to know for herself? Speaking of the boat, I mean, didn't we see last week that 
if you leave Storybrooke, you get turned into a tree or something. And we clearly saw a shot of the Jolly Roger like sailing around some sort of body of water. So is are, is it is it just like international waters? Like there's just open rain on magic on the sea? I think that they're still in the Storybrooke waters. That must be the, the deal. They're just sailing around in a big circle? Yeah. Just like turn the... Turn the uh the uh, what the the, st- the steering wheel, whatever the thing is called that you used to steer the ship, uh, just turn that all the way to the right and just kind of hold it there so you spin in a circle. Oh, the rudder. Yeah, the thing that controls the rudder. I don't know if there's a name for that wheel, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, this would all right. just, yeah, just spin in circles. Drop an anchor. <laughs> so we have we have some uh maybe not not uh, dropping an, no not dropping an anchor in a different way for Hook from now on. Unfortunately, he might have to uh, sail solo for a little <laughs> bit. But uh, we get we, we get Hook and Hood part two here. As go figure, Robin Hood is still brooding in Granny's after I'm assuming the entire day has passed. Um, but this is where I have a question here because Hook sits down and he says, "Okay, now I'm resolute in finding out what is in Emma's basement, but I need the skills of a thief." Uh, paging Will Scarlet. Anybody? Will Scarlet still a thief? Not a former thief? Still in the show? No. Okay. I thought I thought that's where they were going to maybe go to because I don't really think of. I think of Robin Hood as a. I'm splitting hairs here when I say I think of him as a bandit, not a thief. But I think I don't think of him as the sort of person who's going to sneak into a house and pick a lock and then you know hide in the shadows and go downstairs. I mean, I, yeah. I see him as someone who's going to more like ambush your horse and buggy and and make off with the gold. Um, yeah. Which which is two very different styles of thievery. Um, but eh, you know, former thief, I guess, always a thief. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, and what we've already seen Will Scarlet do sort of home break-ins during the that blackout that happened in like one episode when he was caught trying to break into various shops. But I mean, and it's also confusing because I'm I'm pretty sure I read an interview with the creators after season four, and they're like, yeah, we you know we were sad that we didn't get to use Michael Socha enough, that we didn't get to use enough Will Scarlet, but we'll definitely try to use him more in season five. And I feel like this is just a prime layup to use Will Scarlet, but they're deciding to to spike the basketball out of their own hands. Yeah, um, it, I, I was, I was, I was also going there mentally, and I was surprised it did not land. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. So I guess what's next on Hook and Robin Hood's agenda is for them to somehow get into Emma's house without her noticing, and somehow get into the basement without her noticing, and figure out what's going on. Yeah, and I, I don't get the impression that Emma is thinking of this as a concern. Like even even though Hook was asking very explicitly about that uh, about that door, uh, I I have a feeling that she's not thinking there's going to be a break in. No, I would I again, and maybe that leads into you know her trying thinking that her you know basically promising some hanky panky would get Hook on her side. Maybe she's Dark Swan is increasingly underestimating everyone else that's around her. Yeah, it's she's. She hasn't quite learned all the ways of the Dark One yet. She's still in Dark 101. Uh, de- definitely in Dark One. That hasn't even moved up to Dark 102 yet. Yeah. Um, but we get a transition here into some, into some Bell stuff. Now, we, we hadn't touched on it before, but in an earlier scene in the pawn shop, Bella talked about how basically the rose was on its last petal, which was, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't say very quickly because they did spend six weeks in Camelot, but it seems like Gold is, is losing life support, but Granny is very quick to notice, and she's really a vessel of, of good tidings this episode, as she very quickly points out to Bell that the Rose has sort of reformed, which we're led to believe means that he has come out of his coma, but she goes to the shop and he is gone. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, I was surprised that he came out of the coma, 
Um, but I was not surprised that when she went back to the shop that he was gone. I didn't know where initially he went to, mm-hmm. um, but not surprised to see that uh, we did not quite get the, the nice reunion between Bell and Gold at this point. No, definitely not. And I, I think that's that was kind of the the creator's way of saying like, yeah, well, definitely, you know, we won't prolong the inevitable. But that being said, we're also going to kind of prolong the inevitable. Yeah. You know, we won't we won't have gold sitting out this entire the character of Mr. Gold, not Robert Carlyle sitting out this entire half story. But at the same time, we're we're, we're all about keeping Hook and Bell, sep- or not Hook and Bell, uh, Rumblestiltskin and Bell as separated as possible. And so we're going to keep to that. Yeah. So it turns out that, yeah, as you said, Mr. Gold was I mean, I. I don't know why the Rose reformed because he still hadn't woken up yet, but it turns out Emma had taken him into the cave, into the basement. And okay, Kurt, can you, what exactly happened here? She was holding us a sword of some significance and then it turned into dust and then he woke up. I ignored that. (laughs) I did not. I didn't, I didn't catch the, um, the significance of that. I mean, maybe later we find out that she, you know, you know, um, uh, that uh, the sword was emblematic of all things heroic and that when she uh, reduced it to its most essential particles, it infused his skin and he's now more <laughs> as, it, as it fell upon him. I, I don't yes. know. It was just unknown sword crumbled. I didn't quite get it. Like I didn't. Heroic, heroic moisturizer. Yeah. Like in, unless she was like holding it over him thinking that he was going to maybe like in case he sprung up and attacked her, uh, like she doesn't truly really know where gold's mind or head or demeanor is that um mm-hmm. not entirely sure the only theory that i have is that again in that earlier scene with bell she had talked about how she basically finished on nearly finished a potion that would somehow bring him out of this coma but the only thing she needed was something that he had touched when he was still a man and so what i th- and I, again this is me making these base assumptions and assuming probably incorrect things about what happened in season two that I completely forgot about, but maybe the sword she was holding was like the sword that one of hooks cutlasses that he had like stolen. Um, and that he had, he had used for something back in back during that whole storyline. And so she had somehow gotten her hands on it. And that was the last piece of the puzzle to finally wake him up. Uh, maybe, um, that, that, that could, that could possibly be, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more, uh, a little less of, of us connecting the dots and a little more of, of them doing it for us. <laughs> yeah. Very, very true. Cause if that is, I mean, that's a, that's a long way to go to really put that stuff together because it was really like a second. And I will say about this other scene too, it was, it's really fun actually watching dark clippy look over gold's unconscious body. It, it's like something I like the parent trap to have like <laughs> Robert Carlyle on screen at once playing two different characters. True. And, and you know, I'm surprised we, and I think the you know, parent trap was a Disney film, wasn't it? So maybe that's a tie in. Uh, yeah, I was both versions were. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe, maybe we'll see that next season. Maybe everyone will have a twin that they didn't realize. Twin twist. Twin twist. Oh my God. Yes. Featuring the Nolan twins will come. They finally got their LA break. They're going to, they're going to be on once upon a time. Yeah. It's, um, it's going to happen. So gold does wake up. And I, again, this is only off of two lines, but Kurt, could you gauge whether gold was like, because I think one of the questions we asked was, you know, now that gold has the magic sucked out of him and the dark ones left him, will he go back to the Rumpelstiltskin he was before, like the really cowardly kind of rat of a man, or it's just going to be what he normally was? And I couldn't really tell in like the few lines he had this episode. Yeah, I, I, that was a question I had as well. I wasn't sure where they were kind of, again, guiding his demeanor. Um, you know, even like the, you know, if we take a clue from Emma, she says, you're not 
dark, you're not light. Your heart is a, you're kind of a blank slate right now. Um, that almost makes it seem like, you know, his, you know, even pre dark one, you know, memories and actions are off the board now. Like, is he truly, they say he's the purest who's ever lived. Um, and she's going to make him a hero. So I'm not sure what his kind of resting demeanor is at this point. Yeah. And this will be an interesting dynamic of dark clippy educating Emma, how to be the dark one who's educating gold about how to be the purest hero who's ever lived. Yeah. Where's the expert? And <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Some, somebody has to be telling everyone what to do at this point. Yeah. It's, um, and so I think we're, we're to believe that, uh, only gold can pull the sword from the stone. Is that where she is at least going with this? Yeah, I guess she, she's saying, you know, if I can't go with, if the, the hero I went with at first is resilient to do so, let me take the blankest slate possible and say, okay, you're, I'm going to make you a hero, which I think is basically what she told Gold at the end of the episode, which I'm assuming will probably come crashing down in front of her. But I guess it's a, it's, it's a, it's a chance to take. Do we think that if, uh, say, uh, someone who is not deserving to pull the sword from the stone tries to in Storybrook, that it will disintegrate them? I don't know, um, because I think we had that question last episode, too, about, I mean, maybe Emma's different because she's the dark one. Um, it blew her across not, the room. I mean, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure, actually. That's an interesting question. You know I mean, what? I guess we'll We've see. got six more dwarves to find out. <laughs> Just send them in one at a time. Uh, Bashful, could you come here, please? Yeah, no, I, I don't want to. <laughs> Does it involve public attention? Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about this episode, Kurt, before we start wrapping things up? No, I think we uh, covered it all. All right. So if you guys have any ideas about what Emma is going to be using Rumpelstiltskin for, or whether you think Hook is a hero or a villain, or if you have any survivor comparisons to King Arthur as of yet, you have several ways to reach out to us. As always, you can leave a comment on this page on Post Show Recaps. Uh, while you're there, be sure, if you haven't yet, to subscribe to our Once Upon a Time only feed at postshowrecaps.com slash once iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a, a rating or a review so we have our own a reliquary of fantastic comments uh, from you great listeners and as always you can reach out to us on twitter kurt clark how can people find you on twitter uh i am simply at kurt clark on twitter and i know that right before we uh jumped on on to record this or right at the beginning of the hour you actually posted on twitter if there's anybody who had questions i'm just quite kind of uh, poking through the twitter feed right now and i actually think that we uh covered all of them what happened to will scarlet etc yeah. etc cetera, et cetera. but yeah no thanks thanks for everybody for for reaching out to us as, as it was i think we just kind of inadvertently covered everything, which is awesome. Yeah. And I, and I mean, thank you guys as always. And uh, I mean, we have, we have some seasons ago, but it's, it's always great to hear back from you guys every week, especially as you know, we're, we're starting to reinvigorate the season a little bit. As always, you can reach me at a Mike Bloom type on Twitter and, Please stay tuned to post show recap. So we are getting as as we've been revving up this season, we're revving up our fall programming as well. The Walking Dead, as we talked about before, zombie nights. We have regular zombies, maybe zombie nights. I don't know. I haven't watched that show in a long time. Uh, but the season six uh, premiere of The Walking Dead has just aired. So Rob and Josh will, of course, be covering that. And they talked about uh, The Walking Dead as well on most shows recapped. Fargo comes back for its second season. And so Josh and Antonio Mazzaro and Jeremiah Panhorse are going to be covering that as well as Josh and Antonio covering the leftovers. SNL just had its second episode. So we really, I mean, the, again, to, to keep reemphasizing this phrase, we are really just getting started here on post-show recaps. But unfortunately, we are starting to wrap things up and not in a way that Granny did with her takeout order. 
Kurt, do we have a hashtag for people who made it all the way to the end of this podcast? I would really love to go hashtag bro table. I like hashtag bro table. That's 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 a good one. Um, all right. So hashtag bro table. If you made it all the way to the end again, thank you guys so much for listening. We'll, we will be back next week. And uh, remember, if you're of some notoriety and you want to remain secretive, try not to wear your trademark outfit. Take care, everyone. Bye bye.